Hello and welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment or ACE podcast brought to you by Silver Adventures. Every fortnight we invite aged care industry experts, thought leaders and passionate individuals to share their knowledge and experience with us as we examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. I'm your host Ash Deneef and today we're talking to Stephanie Bendixson. Stephanie is a TV presenter and author who has worked extensively in video games and technology and is also an ambassador for Dementia Australia. Stephanie lost her mum to Alzheimer's in 2018 and since then she's been sharing her experiences with the disease in the hope of helping people be more prepared to face it than she and her family were. In this conversation you're going to hear some very honest truths as Stephanie digs into what she wishes she'd done differently in her mum's final years and what resources are now available to make life easier for people living with dementia. She also mentions a few video games that have been made about dementia or feature dementia prominently as part of the story, and you can find links to these in the episode description. So I hope you enjoyed this very honest look at dementia with Stephanie Bendixson. So thank you so much for joining us, Steph. Can you tell us a bit about your backstory and how you became a dementia advocate? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I lost my mum to dementia in 2018 and it was a, um, a disease that she suffered with for, well, I actually don't know how long because the diagnosis portion of the illness is really difficult. So I think I would say it affected our family for the better part of 10 years, but when I think about it now, it would have been a lot longer than that. My experience with her and, and her illness spanned um, her living at home with her as my mum to her living with my dad and requiring a carer to moving into full-time care in a nursing home to passing away well before she should have. So I got to sort of experience all of the horrible lows that come from watching someone you love change so terribly and lose such a, a meaningful portion of their life you know, well before their time. So yeah, it was a, it was, it was a tough experience. And I think when you, I think when you go through something like that, that it always makes sense when you see people who are ambassadors for charities that represent something that they've been personally affected by. But I think having experienced it myself, I understood that a lot more because you're kind of left with all of this helplessness and you don't really know how you can make yourself feel like you can contribute in any kind of meaningful way. And I think an organisation like Dementia Australia made it easier for me to process what I was feeling and feel like I had some sort of helpful purpose after feeling so helpless for so long. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I'd like to come back to your advocacy in a little bit, but if we could hone in on, on your mum's story a bit and, and maybe you were talking about the period before her diagnosis that was a challenging one but you weren't really sure what's going on. Can you touch on that a bit? Sure. So my mum, her name was Wendy and she worked in her life as a flight attendant. That's where she met my, my dad mm-hmm. and also as a nurse. Like those were the two like main occupations for women in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and yeah, she was, she was uh, great at both. And so she was very focused um, in the health industry and she was very organised and she was, she was just a really great carer in general. And towards the end of her career, she moved into aged care. Ironically, she was working in retirement villages and would look after people who were elderly. And because she'd worked in hospitals, she was she ran a very tight ship. <laughs> you know, she was very clean. She was very 
you know, organized. So I had this very particular view of, of her and who she was and it became very strange when those aspects of her personality started to change and those were the things that we sort of started to notice early on. Mm. Because when you think about Alzheimer's or, or, or dementia, you think about someone just forgetting things a lot, but those, those aren't necessarily the first symptoms. I think she just started to become a little bit more withdrawn in the beginning. Mm-hmm. She lost confidence. She wouldn't do anything without my dad. She stopped wanting to drive places outside of our immediate surrounding suburb. She stopped wanting to drive at night. She she kept complaining that she couldn't see properly at night. She had something called night blindness, I think she she called it. Yeah, so she just became a lot more withdrawn. And then she she started making little mistakes that you could attribute to anyone. Like I'm a massive scatterbrain. I'm so forgetful. Um, you know, I had the nickname Space Cadet in high school because I'm <laughs> just always in another realm somewhere, you know, and just clueless. Um, she would forget the pin number of her, you know, debit card. She would park her car somewhere and forget where she'd parked mm. it and things like that. Stuff that we were just like, oh, gosh, you know. But then she started to, the house that she always kept very neat and tidy started to become like a little bit more chaotic. And my dad was working full-time and she was working part-time in aged care. So she was still kind of trying to manage the home Mm -hmm. as best she could, but was losing the ability to do that. Things were starting to kind of pile up strangely. She would buy multiple versions of, or she'd be multiple numbers of things, you know, three cartons of milk or 10 avocados or something, you know, it was really strange. Coupled with this is that she was type one diabetic. So she had to be managing her medication herself as well. And she'd become really good at that. And there were really only a handful of times throughout, you know, she had um, diabetes since her sort of early forties. There were really only a handful of times where she had mismanaged her medication and she'd had a, a, a low blood sugar or high blood sugar event, <laughs> I suppose. But these started to become more frequent as well, where she just mismanaged her medication and things like that. I think anytime something like this starts to happen, it's really scary for everyone and there is a a general feeling of mass denial Mm. (laughs) that sets in when no one wants to believe the worst, no one wants to even consider the worst. So my dad for a long time was really exploring options of it could be anxiety or depression. She was really difficult to talk to about it because she didn't want to talk about it. And she'd start to get really aggressive if mm-hmm. you tried to have that conversation with her. And that kind of aggression and defensiveness is, is obviously when someone is, a, is questioning your behaviour or the function of your mind, I suppose, anyone would be defensive. But also I think aggression is a pretty strong symptom of what's going on in your mind when it's sort of deteriorating as a result of, of dementia. I know that now. So yeah, she, she went to, to a therapist for a while. We did all kinds of tests, cognitive tests that did like some brain scans and stuff, but it's really difficult. You can't always see dementia or, or Alzheimer's, you know, in, in any sort of brain scan. And because she was so nervous and anxious about the prospect of taking these cognitive tests, it was really difficult to determine whether she was not answering them correctly because she had something wrong with her brain or because she was just so anxious about the whole situation. She'd get so flustered and she'd cry and it was difficult for a doctor to definitively say that something was affecting her one way or another. And it kind of went on in that stage for years. And it wasn't until it started to kind of manifest in her conversation and recollection of things 
that it became pretty clear to me what was happening. And it was like big life event stuff. When you have a conversation with someone and, you know, you tell them something and they may have forgotten that you had that conversation, it's pretty normal. We all do that sometimes. But as an example, my sister announced that she was pregnant to us all at a family dinner and it was a really lovely celebration and we were all just, it was a beautiful moment. And the next day we were at the shops and my mum found a little baby outfit and she said, this would be so lovely for Karen. And then she looked at me and she was like, did you know that she's pregnant? And I was like, yeah, I was there. She told us all together. And she looked at me for a moment and she was like, oh, yes, of course. Like, yeah, of course. And I was like, weird. But then we sort of continued out throughout the day and it was like the same, it was like a deja vu. We walked into another shop and she picked up the same, a similar kind of baby outfit and she goes, this would be amazing for Karen. And then she looked at me and she was like, did you know that she was pregnant? And I was like, yes. (laughs) And it was in those moments that I started to get a really, my heart was racing because I was like, this is not normal and I know what this is. Mm. And then when I tried to bring that up with my dad, he was very unwilling to accept any possibility that that's what it could be. So even for a long time after that, those kinds of instances started to happen more and more. And my dad was still very much like, this is a problem that we can solve. Mm. So it was really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking that one of the the challenging things for your dad must be, as you were saying before, seeing this person that he knows change in front of his eyes and, and these things which he's taken to be kind of stalwarts of her personality, her organisation and her how switched on she is with everything, to, to have that slip away. It must have been really hard for him to confront that. It, it really was. And I think, you know, there's so much that comes with it because, you know, they both worked and he wasn't quite ready to retire yet. But he had this sort of vision for what retirement would be with her and he couldn't really stop working yet because he wasn't financially able to and was now kind of starting to realise that the picture that he had for his sort of retirement plan was was going to be quite different. In the early stages of, of her dementia, before we could really sort of definitively say it was, was it what it was, it's really difficult not to just get profoundly frustrated with the person mm. because not only is she, you know, forgetting things that seem obvious. The rest of her personality is still there. She still seems to function and talk to you like a normal person. And so when she forgets major things or repeats herself or says things that are just untrue because they're not making sense in her mind in the the right way anymore and then will really get aggressively defended and then, you know, you try to correct her and then she'll get really angry at you. So you end up in these fights all the time and, and it's so hard to, it's, now, if I could if I could go back, I would have much earlier moved to a place of acceptance in the fact that she's not able to recall things normally anymore and it's not worth having the argument about it. But because you're you're always hoping that if you correct her, then she'll understand it's not actually as bad as it is and that she'll be able to be like, oh, actually, no, you're right. I remember that. This is where we went on that holiday and it was fine and there's nothing really wrong with me. That's kind of, I think, what you're always pushing for. Mm but memories and ideas and thoughts are actually not able to organize themselves in her mind in the right way anymore. And so she starts to kind of really persist with just all of these things that just aren't true. And it's really hard to just sit and listen to it and know that it's not true and not correct it and not get into a fight about it. Yeah. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Can we flash forward a bit to the diagnosis? and What changed after the diagnosis? I think she had some awareness that something was wrong with her by that point. She still didn't really want to talk about it, but she would have really sort of mercurial emotional reactions to things. So she could be really happy and then she would just, she'd spontaneously just cry a lot. And then it was around the time of, of her diagnosis that we started to notice more cognitive issues, which is not something like manifesting physically. That -hmm. was not something that I was aware of with dementia. I just thought it was, I thought Alzheimer's was something that made you forget slowly. You'd just forget until you didn't know who anyone was. That's my understanding of it. But I didn't realize that it attacks your brain to the point where you can't actually measure distance properly, that contrast in, in light and shade is really difficult. Certain colors become, dis- you know, she started to kind of fall over a lot. She would choke on mm. her food a lot. She was unable to kind of chew as normally. Um, she would bump into things. She struggled to kind of find where the chair was. She struggled to lower herself into a chair properly, things like that. And it was around this time as well that she started to fall into a speech pattern that was very much, she had, it was like she had an increasingly limited vocabulary where she understood the right sort of response for a conversation, but she couldn't really expand on any kind of topic. Mm-hmm. She lost the ability to converse in any normal human way. She just would react the way that she thought was appropriate. And occasionally she would just fabricate a memory. <laughs> I think, to feel like she could contribute because she couldn't normally. She couldn't have an opinion on things or she couldn't. She lost the ability to have a kind of independent thought about something. It was just you've said something that is either sad or happy and I know the right response to that Mm -hmm. or, you know, it it just became, it was just like, I mean, they say dementia is the sort of the pathways to your synapses are sort of breaking down and it was like she was slowly losing access to all the things that, allow you to communicate effectively. And so I I also noticed with her that she had periods of deterioration that would kind of plateau for about about six months and then in another six-month period it would decline rapidly and then kind of plateau off again. Wow. Um, What you said reminded me of something that Christine Bryden said. We spoke to Christine a couple of weeks ago. She's been living with dementia for over 25 years now and um, she was talking about she doesn't, have as much ability to focus on the words of what people are saying but she can pick up the body language and the sentiment and maybe that's what your mum was was having where she could respond to the kind of feel of what was being said but couldn't really dig into the details yeah yeah that definitely feels like what, what she was doing and I think that was similar to you know when she would kind of just make things up I think that was just her way of she couldn't recall any kind of real memory so she would sometimes she would just fabricate something or I've been there before or I did that or we had such a great time even if it wasn't true because she knew that it was a response that would be technically appropriate in that situation even Mm. if it wasn't an actual uh, truthful response. Yeah. Now you said that um, often when you asked her or you tried to have a conversation with her about it, it became quite difficult. Did you ever get to have the conversation you wanted? I don't think so. I think it I think it was just I was aware of the fact that it was so scary for her and we sort of treated her a little bit like a child. We were like there's just something a little bit wrong with your 
um, memory, but it's fine because we're all here for you and we're going to help you. That was kind of the way we approached it. Mm-hmm. But I never had like an intellectual conversation with her about it. Yeah. I think, it. yeah, it, it's so hard because I didn't really have that relationship with her either. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. I think my greatest regret well, the, my greatest sadness out of all of this is that I never really got to have like a properly adult relationship with her. You know, she was always my mom as a child. My mom's a teenager. And then when I was kind of in my 20s, she was sick and I was, you know, living out of home and coming to visit her as she sort of progressively got worse. But now is the time in my life when I would have so many things that I'd want to ask her and have a, an adult relationship with her and, and have, you know, intellectual conversations about life and and things and and I can't do that and so I'm I'm really sad that I never got to have those conversations with her and so yeah I think it was probably just the age that I was at and just the relationship that I had with her at that point I didn't feel confident in addressing anything in in a confronting way mm-hmm. so I just sort of took my sister's lead and and we I suppose treated her like a child in a way mm. to try and make it easier for her absolutely it's it's so tricky to know you just want things to be easier, right? You just want her to be comfortable. And when you found that the confrontation or or pointing out things doesn't help, I can see that you just want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. And I think the the biggest part of um, the biggest sadness my dad has and the the greatest guilt is that I think all of us, um, but him in particular, because he was her primary carer, wish that we had been more forgiving earlier Mm. on, um, you know, of, of her aggressiveness and her forgetfulness. And, and, you know, when she started to sort of make things up, you know, it came from a, it came from a desperation of wanting her to not be unwell. Yeah. But I just wish that if she said something that didn't make sense or wasn't true, I wish I just earlier on would have just been like, that's fine. Or, okay. Yeah. You know, cause it's just, you'd get into this awful fight about it and then she wouldn't remember it anyway. So it was, <laughs> you would just it just made so many of the experiences that I had with her in that latter part of her life so horrible when it, I feel like it could have been easier if I'd just resigned myself to what was happening a lot earlier. Mm, but it does sound like at least what you're saying that your dad was having trouble accepting it as well and maybe if you and your sister and your dad could have had the conversation earlier then maybe you all three of you would have gotten to a place earlier. For sure, yeah. And I think there was so much denial, particularly on my on my dad's part. It was really difficult to, yeah, I think to talk seriously. And we were never really a family of like open communication, really. My dad was, is a very stoic person. Mm. We would never like, I don't know, when you just see those sort of American sitcom families where they share everything and they talk <laughs> to each other about everything. Yeah, like yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. have that kind of relationship. I push for that relationship with him now because mm. I see how important it is. And I think having gone through something like this, I don't, I don't want to feel the same way at the end of his life that I haven't, I haven't been open with him in the way that I wish I had. But at the time I definitely didn't have the emotional maturity to, to take the lead on, on having in-depth discussions about it. And I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, your mum's journey went through care in the home and then care in the aged care facility. What was that process like? Yeah. So initially when she was still mostly herself, but just couldn't function in a helpful way in the house anymore. Like she needed help uh, for one with her insulin for her diabetes, but also, um, you know, she couldn't 
couldn't start or finish any task really. Mm-hmm. You know, there were just, there was stuff everywhere because she would carry things from one end to the house and then lose them and things would just pile up and there were dishes and mm-hmm. it was all just a bit chaotic and my dad was still working full time. So we had a carer come to the house to just take her places to like get a haircut or to go like to the shops, just things that would occupy her. Because then what started happening was when my dad was working from home, you know, he was working in like a pool pump repair sort of service. So he was working in the garage a lot um, when he wasn't out visiting people's houses. She would just come out to ask him a question Mm -hmm. for every decision she needed to make throughout the day. Like, what should I have for lunch? Where is the bread? Should I go to the shops to get some bread? I can't go to the shops. Can you take me to the shops? I don't know if I, and you know, it was just like exhausting for him. So having someone come there to just sort of be with her a couple of times a week um, to help her kind of manage herself and um, give her things to occupy her was really helpful. Mm. I think once it got to the point that she became more sort of incontinent, I think that's when my dad had to look at aged care Mm. for her because not only was it about managing her insulin but every aspect of her life she needed help with. The decision to put mum in in full-time care was was probably the hardest decision that my dad ever had to make Um, and he felt so guilty about it and he was constantly sort of explaining to us why it needed to happen we were like dad it's fine but you know we're not we're not there able to be looking after her every day and and also my dad had a heart condition and the stress was making it worse and it was a whole thing so then we started looking into aged care facilities for her and I think that process was probably the most traumatic of the whole thing Mm -hmm. because when you look at what is available to you since aged care has been privatized it's just awful you know, there's so many places we looked at which is awful. We found a place that was really lovely and had this kind of therapeutic garden and they had a really lovely, you know, activities program and staff that were really, um, it was just really well staffed with people that were all dedicated to kind of enriching the life for people that were there. It was astronomically expensive. <laughs> and it was just we we looked at all options that we we could to try and afford it and it was but not only is it expensive on, on a weekly basis to be able to afford the care and the room but you need to put down a deposit in this case it was half a million dollars mm. a deposit that's refunded you know when that person dies but that was like my dad was living off his superannuation at that point and it was just he was like I have nothing to live off if I put all my money in this deposit And then on top of that, he needs to pay the weekly rate. It was just out of control. So we ended up having to sort of settle for one of these places that just seemed like something out of a nightmare and it was awful. And my mum, like when we we took her there, she was still cognizant enough to to be aware of what was happening and she was like, please don't, please don't like make me live here. It was Mm -hmm. awful. Like the aged care situation, no one wants to think about it and no one wants to focus on it, but we're all going to get old. Mm. Some of us, uh, you know, are going to end up there earlier than we would like. And the poor staff, like, there's just not enough and they're all overworked and it's just, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm optimistic that through the pandemic and through the Royal Commission, there's going to be a larger amount of scrutiny on the industry and, and I'm hopeful that we can see some marked changes on the way these things are done. But you're right, it, there are some locations where it's, it's terrible and, and the system does need to be looked at very closely, I think. I want to come back and, and underscore something you said, not, not necessarily digging into it, but just to underscore when you're talking about care in the home, it's nice to hear that the care wasn't necessarily, at the beginning wasn't necessarily hands-on care, but just social care and taking her out to do things. And I think that 
at least for myself, I have a misconception that care in the home will mean showering and cleaning and, and these sorts of things. But just to be there with her and to give your dad some time away, that sounds like that would have been very important. Yeah, because like I said, she loses the ability to communicate in, in a kind of normal way. So you really need someone who understands what it's what enjoyment of life can be like for a person mm. like that. And sometimes it's just, yeah, taking them to the park or going for a walk or um, experiencing something that they can enjoy in the moment. Mm-hmm. Because towards the end, mum was literally just living in the present tense. She had no concept of the past or future. It was just everything that was happening to her in that moment she could react to. But you couldn't say, remember this or tomorrow we're going to do that. And she wouldn't be able to comprehend what that meant. It was just that right now we're here together and that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can we move to your, your work as a dementia advocate? What do you do in that capacity? Sure, yeah. So probably the, the main thing is there's a big um, memory walk and jog that happens every year. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, something that we try to promote a lot. This year it was obviously a bit more difficult with the pandemic, mm-hmm. but that's a, an event that happens in most states around the country and it's a great fundraising opportunity. The other thing is I do in my work in video games, I do a lot of fundraising for charity through live streaming. So cool. I think the first year I raised like $15,000 through through that and then the second year it was like twenty five. So it was really exciting wow. um, fundraising just for whatever sort of preconceived ideas people have about gamers. They're um, very generous for a cause. So it was really, mm. really great. So this would be you, you're streaming an event and people are tuning in and donating? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cool. Or, or just video games and I'll just stream video games and people will donate. So if you're, if you're streaming for a cause, people are always really keen to get on board. Mm. Um, and then the other thing was that I just went in the um, sort of early stages of becoming an ambassador. I went down to Melbourne and visited Dementia Australia and learned a lot about the facilities that they've been working on for people and getting an understanding of how they can help not only families with living with someone who's been affected by dementia, but uh, the kinds of resources that they are providing for aged care workers. Mm -hmm. In the lobby, they had a a range of furniture and items that they could show you are useful to have in the home for someone that's living with dementia. So when I talked about my mum struggling to sit down in a chair properly, it all comes from a deteriorating ability to manage depth perception and contrast and colour particularly when you're lowering yourself into a chair. A lot of the time a person with dementia can no longer distinguish where the seat of the chair is compared to the floor. Mm -hmm. So quite often it's about having a chair that has a seat that is a different colour to the rest of the chair and is a different colour to the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, So that helps a lot. The same with the toilet seat. If you think about a toilet in a bathroom and if the bathroom floor is white and the toilet is white and the seat of the toilet Mm -hmm. is white, it just becomes one blob in the vision. So if you get it, you can get a toilet seat that is black on a, on a white toilet and that immediately becomes easier for someone to kind of identify, Oh, that's where I need to sit. Mm. Things like that. Um, and to better understand what that is like, um, there was this incredible VR experience that they were showing to aged care workers to get, to communicate a sense of what it is like to be a person living with dementia. So Mm -hmm. it kind of puts you in a first person experience with limited visual abilities to understand what that might be like 
And a lot of the time it's kind of um, shadows doing strange things which look a bit scary. Everything's a little bit blurry. Um, as you say, like rugs and, and certain patterns on the ground can appear like a hole. So sometimes you'll see someone with dementia will be kind of skirting around things because they think that, that there's a, a big chasm in the ground there when it's, mm. you know. And these are all things that you get frustrated with in, you know, when you're so <laughs> when you're with someone because you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't understand because you you don't have the ability to, to perceive what they're seeing and you don't. And again, I had no idea that that's what dementia was. I thought she would just forget things. I, I was struggling to understand why suddenly it was difficult for her to walk up and down stairs. So that was all really helpful. That was a really incredible, that's one of those experiences where VR can be so useful because it really puts you in the space of someone with a condition that you may not understand. And suddenly, you know, from that first person perspective, be able to experience it yourself. Mm. And then it kind of shows you the different amendments that you could make to your home to minimize uh, the negative aspects of that experience for someone. So, um, you know, taking away the rugs and putting some contrasting uh, colours and, and shades into some of the sort of household appliances, large signs on walls with a picture of a toilet or a picture of a bed to, to show you. When all the doors are closed, you know, it just looks like some weird house of mirrors, I think, for someone with dementia. They mm-hmm. struggle to, you know, turn taps on and things. So things like disability taps and stuff are much easier. Um, and that means that that person is going to be able to live at home with you for a longer period of time, which is ideal, really. So that was really useful. Um, and then there was an app that they developed called A Better Visit, which um, I wish I'd known about it or I wish it had been completed rather when when I was uh, visiting my mum. I really had these very mixed feelings of going to visit her because every time I'd see her, I knew she was going to be worse. I was waiting for the moment when she wouldn't recognise me at all. And sometimes I feel like I would stand in front of her and I would wait for her to recognize me first. And I could see her looking at me like she was trying to understand what she was looking at. Like she had some recognition, but she didn't so mm. she didn't say why. And then I'd say, Hi, Mum, it's me, Steph, your daughter. And then she'd react really lovely and she'd she'd be like, Oh, and then she'd be telling everyone, This is my daughter, she's come to visit me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like she needed that prompt at the start because she couldn't make the connection on her own. Mm-hmm. And then we would have these sort of visits where I'd take her for a walk and, and I would tell her what I'd been doing and she'd just kind of mm-hmm and reply and say, oh, how nice. And then that was kind of it. All I could do was just talk and tell her things and, and she couldn't respond in any kind of meaningful way. But the app gives you kind of like little mobile games that you can use with a touch screen that I guess are quite childlike, like you would give to it like a toddler maybe, mm-hmm. but are visually engaging in a way that would be really wonderful to share with someone who has limited cognitive ability. And they're not like hard games, like they're not like puzzles that you need to solve in any kind of complex way. They really are just very basic colouring in or um, sensory kind of things, but it, it was a really clever thing to design for people who were just looking for a, a way to interact with someone with dementia when they perhaps have lost lost the ability to communicate in the way that they would like. Yeah, and it's uh, it links to what you were saying earlier about your mum was just living in the present and that she didn't necessarily have access to the, the past and couldn't really make plans. But if she could be highly engaged in what was going on in the moment, that, that was probably really worthwhile. Actually having a lot of conversations with people who are high up in aged care organisations, there's a shift that's moving much more towards experience-based care and I find that to be really, um, really exciting because it, it says that it's still worth having experiences whether or not you form memories, whether or not 
it will be something that stays with you forever or not. The actual moment is important. And I, I like the sound of this app a better visit because it contains that in it as well. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people who are struggling to, I guess, emotionally deal with what's happening, I think the hardest part are the visits because you don't know how to how to spend that time together. Mm. And then it makes you want to not go because you start to dread visiting because it's just going to be difficult and emotionally distressing for everyone. Mm-hmm. So having an app like that to kind of bridge that gap is just, you know, invaluable, I think. Absolutely. Um, my grandfather was in a care facility for I'm not sure how long, actually, I was quite young at the time, but I remember visiting him and, and the feeling of I'm not really sure what we do. Do we just sit here and be with him? He doesn't know who I am, but I guess I'll sit with him. Mm. Now, moving from the app to technology, you work in gaming and technology. How do you see technology becoming more involved in aged care and and care for people with dementia? Um, I think because as we were talking about people with dementia, you know, really do live in the moment and react to, I guess, visual stimulus I think there are really wonderful things that can be done with, I guess, touchscreen applications to just create, you know, visually engaging things in the moment. Mm-hmm. At the moment, when you sort of go to an aged care facility, mm-hmm. there's usually um, maybe individual rooms and then there'll be like a common room with a bunch of chairs and a TV mm-hmm. and that's kind of it. And then they'll have maybe like a few activity days where someone might come with a dog or Maybe they'll have like a French themed day or something like that. (laughs) And then the staff will wear berets or something. But it's like, I feel like from the start of the day to the end of the day, I can't, your condition would potentially just get worse because you're just staring at a wall or you're just in a TV room with, you know, 20 other people. If there could be more of an emphasis on, on creating sort of stimulating engagement through a touchscreen technology, Mm. that would be really incredible. There's also been um, just some really great indie games just for, um, you know, regular gamers that follow the story of memory loss and Alzheimer's disease and dementia that are just made by people who've been touched by it in some way and want to share that experience with someone. Because video games are so interactive and so experiential compared to more passive mediums like film Mm. or literature, um, it really does put you in a presence of mind to really think about what that must feel like. So I think that's such an important way to be telling those stories as well. Mm. What are some of those titles, some of those games that you're talking about? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I can send you a list afterwards. That would be great. Um, yeah, thank you. There's at least two that I've played that were um, super affecting for me. So Cool. Um, we're just about out of time. Is there, anything, is there anything that you want people to know about your experience with dementia or anything at all you want to talk about before we go? I suppose just that the... Um, the period of, of diagnosis at the moment is still really difficult, but I know that there are some advancements being made in that area to try and get an earlier diagnosis. And I suppose the other thing that I would say is just, is just that, you know, there are actually really great resources out there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're struggling to come to terms with the reality of what it means, it's difficult to kind of find the impetus to explore those those options for help but the sooner you can the better because I feel like if I'd known all of the stuff that I've learned since becoming an ambassador then it would have been really useful for both myself and my family and for my mom as well if we'd known that there were different resources that we could have lent on for support and uh, for advice and to kind of understand what she was going through a lot more because Mm. I think that was just a big part of it is just not fully understanding the disease and understanding why she was behaving the way she was behaving and the various um, stages of progression 
Um, and I think that the other hardest thing too is that it's just different for everyone. Um, some people it advances really quickly. Some people it advances over a very long period of time and you really just don't know how quickly that's going to happen. I mean, I didn't even know initially that it was something that you could die from, but, it, you know, her whole body ended up sort of shutting down and it accelerated so over the last um, sort of two years of her life. She went from being able to have something of a conversation to just, you know, her body was no longer able to breathe and swallow and eat and do all the things that it needs to do to stay alive. So, you know, I wish I'd known all of that Mm -hmm. so that I could have prepared myself for every eventuality and, and known what was ahead for us. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Steph. This has been a really great chat. Oh, no worries. Thanks so much. I hope I didn't just like talk forever. I tend to do that. No, not at all. It was, it was, it was really good. And thank you for being really vulnerable with it and being open to talking about difficult things. Oh, no worries. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast brought to you by Silver Adventures. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website at www.silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R Adventures. And of course, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on the next one. My name's Ashton Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.